Today is Wednesday, August the 30th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a coin talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener coin format enables us to know what technology issues were on the minds of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is www.pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, www.prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on www.prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. A court might kill the Universal Service Fund. Over the past 26 years, the Universal Service Fund, a federal subsidy pool collected monthly from American telephone customers, has spent close to $9 billion a year to give Americans better phone and internet connections, wiring rural communities in Arkansas, inner-city neighborhoods in Chicago, and public libraries and schools across the country. The fund, paid for with a surcharge on phone bills, could be America's most important tool going forward to fix the so-called digital divide. The huge split in opportunity between Americans who have fast internet access and those who don't. Such access is a bipartisan issue, benefiting both red state, rural communities, and blue-leaning urban neighborhoods. What is the Universal Service Fund programs? Well, within it is the E-Rate program. This program helps tens of thousands of schools and libraries buy connectivity services and equipment. Then there's a high-cost program. This program, which counts various projects among its efforts, including the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, helps subsidize broadband deployment and operating costs for telecom companies seeking to serve customers in rural parts of the United States. The Lifeline Program is another part of the Universal Service Fund. This subsidy, which dates to the Reagan area, has evolved over the decades, aids several million low-income households with a monthly benefit of $9.25 for phone or internet services. The Rural Health Care Program is also part of this, and these subsidies flow to help subsidize the cost of internet connectivity for eligible health care providers like hospitals and community health centers, with the goal of benefiting consumers in remote parts of the country. The fund now faces significant court challenges. There are, in 2021 and 2022, a nonprofit called Consumers Research, founded in 1929, to champion causes against the administrative state. 
The suits target the unusual way the fund is run. Since its inception in the 1990s, the Universal Service Fund money has been administered by a non-profit entity called the Universal Service Administrative Company, which reports to the FCC but operates separately from the agency. The consumer's research suit argues that the Universal Service Fund fees are actually taxes and that the fund's 1996 setup was unconstitutional because it wrongly gives the agency the power to levy taxes and then allows it to delegate management to an outside entity. Initially, a three-judge panels of the 5th and 6th U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeals shot down the arguments from consumers' research in rulings that sided with the commission lawyers. But in late June, the Fifth Circuit agreed to rehear the case before the full court with new arguments set for September the 19th. The Fifth Circuit last year dealt a blow to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in a similarly argued case saying that the agency's funding mechanism is unconstitutional. An appeal in that case is pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. Other similar cases filed by Consumers Research are pending before the 11th Circuit, which held oral arguments in June, and before the D.C. Circuit, which has not yet heard arguments. The cases could ultimately end up at the U.S. Supreme Court, especially if the lower courts come to different conclusions. Even the Universal Service Fund supporters acknowledge that it is due for an overhaul. It was set up in a time when service meant landlines, and the phone companies were the entire backbone of America's communications infrastructure. The fund was established as part of the landmark 1996 Telecommunications Act, and originally its benefits were limited to phone lines. Carriers like Bell South and MCI paid quarterly fees into the fund, which were then used to expand phone services throughout the nation. As the internet has grown in importance and telecom companies started prioritizing broadband service over their traditional phone lines, the fund's mission evolved. FCC leaders decided to make broadband connectivity a central part of its work. This planted the seeds for the first big conflict over the fund. Traditional telecom companies are still on the hook for supplying the USF's funding, but they argue the benefits of broadband largely go elsewhere, specifically to tech behemoths like Google, Meta, and Netflix that depend heavily on broadband for their billions of dollars in profits, but which don't contribute to the fund at all. That has led to a bitter argument in Washington over who should pay going forward. Telcom companies, one of Washington's most powerful lobbies, says it's unfair for them to subsidize Amazon and Google. The tech giants, for their part, whose lobbying clout rivals the telecom industry, say they already pay plenty for infrastructure like content delivery, networks, and data centers. In Washington, their lobbyists describe the idea of contributing as a tax on the Internet. The telecom industry passes the fee directly to customers as a line item on their monthly landline or cell phone bill. So Americans with voice phone service end up paying usually at least a couple of dollars per month to support the programs. As they await court rulings, lawmakers are sporadically mulling the Universal Service Fund's future, but no committee in either chamber has advanced legislation. Traditional telecom companies are still on the hook for supplying the Universal Service funding, 
but they argue the benefits of the broadband largely go to elsewhere, especially to tech giants. The wait for court rulings has stoked anxiety about what could happen if a court ruling strikes down the fund and there is no stay of the decision. A ruling could destabilize aid for millions of consumers and hundreds of companies and institutions. Observers aren't optimistic that Congress will find a solution. In other words, the telecom companies saying the benefits are the tech companies, and the tech companies are saying it's the responsibility of the telecom companies. Someone has to pay the bill. Despite what you heard, incandescent light bulbs aren't banned. However, they did not meet efficiency standard. Last week, a series of headlines announced the start of a ban on incandescent light bulbs. Most of the news articles on the incandescent light bulb got one essential fact wrong. It's not a ban. The incandescent light bulb guidelines did not meet efficiency standard. The roots of the modern incandescent bulb can be traced back to the 1800s and by the 1920s, most American homes in urban areas were illuminated with them. But given incandescents emit light by heating a wire filament until it glows, the average bulb converts around 90% of the electricity it consumes into heat, not light, meaning they're not very efficient. In contrast, light-emitting diodes, that's called LEDs, use electricity fueling them more efficiently. This type of lighting uses a microchip and was first developed in the 1960s. It wasn't until 1994 when a bright blue LED light was developed. Today, LEDs exist in a range of colors and brightness levels. The standard now requires light bulbs to emit at least 45 lumens, a measure of brightness per watt. An average LED light emits at least 75 lumens per watt, while incandescent bulbs only emit 12 to 18 lumens per watt while using more energy. Switching from the classic incandescent to the new age LEDs may sound like a big change, but at the end of the day, most consumers probably didn't notice anything different when the efficiency standard went into effect earlier this month. Most major retailers stopped selling incandescent light bulbs earlier this year. Most people didn't notice, but you really haven't seen incandescent light bulbs on most store shelves for a long time. So what is the history of this old standby incandescent light bulb? In 2007, Congress enacted, with President George W. Bush's signature, the Energy Independence and Security Act, which mandated the phase-out of inefficient bulbs in two stages. The first stage between 2012 and 2014 required freshly sold bulbs to be about 25% more efficient than the market standard at the time. That first year, the 100-watt incandescent bulb had to be taken off the market. Businesses were allowed to sell any remaining inventory, but could not buy and sell the bulbs for manufacturers. In 2013, the efficiency regulations booted out the 75-watt incandescent bulb, and by 2014, 40 and 60-watt bulbs were also out, leaving LEDs and the less popular 43, 72, and 150-watt incandescent bulbs. 
It just happens that the really inefficient lamps can't meet the efficiency requirements, but they never ban incandescence. The Department of Energy planned to release the final efficiency standard by the start of 2017, and while the department couldn't do so for bureaucratic reasons, the interim backstop standard required that all bulbs had to emit at least 45 lumens per watt. The Trump administration blocked this backstop from taking effect, hence delays in the phase phase out. However, in April of 2022, President Biden's Department of Energy reinstated the guidelines, saying the backstop was valid. It took a little over a year to push out the final and current efficiency standard where any manufacturer and sold bulbs must have at least 45 lumens per watt. Since businesses knew this past April the standard would go into effect, they had months to sell off any inventory that did not meet these guidelines. A misconception about this regulation and its history is that it was always aimed at cutting incandescence out of the market. In 2007, when the guidelines were first made, there was hope that incandescence, fluorescence, and LEDs could reach and exceed future efficiency standard. The standard was set at a level that any of those three technologies could have met it. As a result, manufacturers invested in all three technologies in which a technological foot race to create the most efficient bulbs. In the mid-2010s, it became clear that LEDs were far better than their counterparts. When Congress set that standard back in 2007, it unleashed a wave of investments and innovations on the part of the manufacturers to develop that low-cost, high-quality LED that we have on the shelves today. What the standard does and does not do. Consumers don't need to rush to the store to replace any incandescent bulb currently in use in their homes. The standard only applies to the sale, not use, of the bulbs, and there are some notable exceptions. Types of incandescent lights excluded from the standard include, but are not limited to, appliance lamps, black lights, bug lamps, infrared lamps, plant lamps, floodlights, reflective lamps, and traffic signals. Overall, the standard is set to save consumers $3 billion on utility bills annually and cut 222 million metric tons of carbon emission over the next three decades. Some people are unhappy about the standard. Consumers' concerns stem from two places. There are those that dislike LEDs because it's change, and those who hold a stigma against the lights because of the low quality of early models. LED, it's turning into a wonderful general light source, It's evolving to that point, but there are still things that it's not capable of doing well. For example, while LEDs perform well in cool environments, they don't perform well in heat, so they can't be used as oven lights. There are still a few people that are just absolutely opposed to LEDs, claiming they can be harmful. They have some misconceptions about how LEDs give off a tremendous amount of blue light at night that hurts people. But this particular point has not been substantiated by any scientific test. While some manufacturers may take issue with the efficiency standard at the time the 45 lumen watt standard was set years ago, there was consensus among the major players that this was an achievable benchmark. 
What's been misunderstood somewhat is that LEDs were winning in the marketplace even before this standard took effect, and that's because consumers like them. They preferred them because they saved them money, they provide the same or better light as the bulbs they replace, and they last 10 to 25 times longer. And from my point of view, I did not enjoy climbing up ladders to change ceiling lights. The College Board is an American not-for-profit organization that was formed in December of 1899 as the College Entrance Examination Board to expand access to higher education. It is an organization that prepares and administers standardized tests that are used in college admission and placement. Almost every standardized test taken in high school besides the ACT is written, controlled, and graded by the College Board. The use of SAT scores in college admissions varies among institutions. While some colleges place significant emphasis on SAT scores in their admissions process, others may consider them as just one factor among many. Higher scores often make students eligible for merit-based scholarships. Gizmodo, which is an online news medium, tests found that GPAs and SAT scores and other data was being shared with Big Tech by the College Board. Many students have no choice about working with the College Board. The company that administers the SAT test and advanced placements exams. Part of that relationship involves a long history of privacy issues. Tests by Gizmodo found that if you use some of the handy tools promoted by College Board's website, the organization sends details about your SAT scores, GPA, and other data to Facebook, TikTok, and a variety of companies. Gizmodo observed the College Board's website sharing data with Facebook and TikTok when a user fills in information about their GPA and SAT scores. When the reporter from Gizmodo used the College Board's search filtering tools to find colleges that might accept a student with a C-plus grade point average and an SAT score 420 out of 1,600, the site let the social media companies know. Whether a student is acing their tests or struggling, Facebook and TikTok get the details. The College Board shares this data via Pixels, invisible tracking technology used to facilitate targeted advertising on platforms such as Facebook and TikTok. The data is shared along with unique user IDs to identify the students, along with other information about how you use the College Board site. Organizations use Pixels and other tools to share data so they can send targeted ads to people who use their apps and websites on other platforms such as Google, Facebook, and TikTok. We do not share SAT scores or GPAs with Facebook or TikTok and any other third parties using pixels or cookies, said a College Board spokesperson. In fact, we do not send any personally identifiable information through our pixels on the site. In addition, we do not use SAT scores or GPAs for any targeting. Well, after receiving this comment, Gizmodo shared a screenshot of the College Board sending GPAs and SAT scores to TikTok using a pixel. 
The spokesperson then acknowledged that the College Board's website actually does share this data. Pixels are simply a means to measure the effectiveness of College Board advertising, the spokesperson said. If a student uses the college search tool on cb.org, the student can add a GPA and SAT score range to the search filters. Those values are passed in the pixel, not because we configure the pixel that way, but because that's how the pixel works. The spokesperson for the College Board stressed that no personally identifiable information is shared using pixel or cookies. Our test didn't show the College Board sharing information like names or phone numbers, which fall in the category of personal info. However, pixels contain unique strings of letters and numbers meant to identify and track users. For years, experts have argued and demonstrated this privacy risk and is far from anonymous. This kind of data sharing is common on the Internet. For example, Gizmodo found 28,000 apps sending TikTok data in March, a number that likely undercounts the company's actual data harvesting empire. In December of last year, an investigation found Amazon, FBI.gov, and 70,000 other websites sending user data to Twitter, the company now known as X. However, many privacy advocates have argued the College Board and companies which handle data about students and minors should be held to a higher standard, especially when many of these services are all but mandatory in the American education system. The College Board has a long and troubled history when it comes to student privacy. In 2018 and 2019, the organization was caught selling data about students, including the names of SAT test takers, for as little as 47 cents apiece. An investigation in 2020 by the reporter from Gizmodo found similar data sharing practices in which College Board told Google, Facebook, and numerous other companies about nearly everything you did on the company's website. At the time, this violated explicit commitment the College Board made to users, including the Student Privacy Pledge, a voluntary commitment between education technology companies by signing the pledge. The College Board promised not to use or disclose student information collected through an educational school service, whether personal information or otherwise, for behavioral targeting of advertisements to students. Since then, the College Board appears to have scrubbed references to the Student Privacy Pledge from its website and is no longer listed as a signatory. The College Board spokesperson said the company uses student data with permission to help students access and succeed in college. Transparency is among our key data privacy principles, the spokesperson said, providing a link to the company's privacy policy. If you want to attain higher education in the United States, the College Board is hard to avoid. The organization writes and administers the SAT test and advanced placement exams, which students take to earn college credit and bolster applications. The College Board also runs standardized tests taken by children as young as kindergartners and essentially writes the curriculum in some school district. The College Board, as powerful as a government institution in some regards, is a nonprofit, but that doesn't mean it isn't profitable for the people who run it. 
according to the tax form, 14 of the college board's 17 executives made more than $300,000 in 2021. Together, the CEO, David Coleman, and President Jeremy Singer made over $1.7 million a year. A tech CEO says employees need to be in the office because it's hard to build trust over Zoom. Who was that CEO? It was the Zoom CEO. A leaked audio recording provides more detail on why the teleconferencing company is cracking down on remote work. In the wake of the onslaught of COVID-19, employees across the world grew chummy with a perfectly appropriate remote work schedule that allows them to work from home. However, one of the companies that carried pandemic digital infrastructure on its back, Zoom, isn't too keen on keeping remote workers away from the office since the video calling platform is making them too friendly, according to the leaked audio. A meeting was held by Zoom CEO Eric Yuan at an all-hands meeting at the company. The report on the recording in which Juan told employees within 50 miles of an office that they must report to the office a minimum of two days a week. The announcement came at a company-wide meeting on August the 3rd, during which Juan said that it's difficult for Zoomies, that's a pet name the company gives to employees, to build trust with each other on a computer screen. Yuan also reportedly added that it's difficult to have innovative conversations and debates on the company's own platform because it makes people too friendly. Over the past several years, we've hired so many new Zoomies that it's really hard to build trust, Yuan said in the audio. We cannot have a great conversation. We cannot debate each other well because everyone tends to be very friendly when you join a Zoom call. Yuan's proposed hybrid schedule is not a huge ask, as a lot of competently run companies are finding a happy medium between remote work and wholly in-office routine through hybrid arrangements. Yuan comments, however, point more towards the company's beliefs in the ability of its platform. It makes you too friendly and is unable to help you build trust with a guest on your core or help you innovate. Yuan is far from the first tech CEO to ask employees to return to office post-COVID-19 lockdowns. Earlier this summer, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg mandated three days per week in the office for his employees, while Apple has reportedly begun taking attendance of those in the office. Some companies, however, have seen plenty of friction in mandating a return to the office work, like Amazon, whose employees have staged a walkout in protest. During the height of the pandemic, a majority of the big tech companies and their employees saw the promise in a completely remote schedule, which was touted as a massive perk during a hiring boom and helped these companies grow exponentially. Now that the likes of Zoom Amazon and Meta are scaling back on that perk. They may be facing increasing backlash from their workforce. Gen Z is ditching iPhones for $100 feature phones. 
Earlier this year, it was reported that Gen Z and millennials were putting down their smartphones and picking up flip phones instead by shutting out algorithmic social feeds and never-ending war of videos and embracing the humble physical keyboard digital detoxing was achieved. What sprouted from a video of a TikTok user advocating for the digital well-being of the younger generation has apparently tugged just enough heartstrings to uplift a once-fading and undervalued phone market, according to analysts from CounterPoint Research. The market of feature phones can best be described as retro handset. Think old-school flip and slider phones. By nature, the limited functionality means that feature phones are cheaper than the standard iPhone or Android device, with prepaid options going for as low as $20 and unlock options just scratching the $100 mark. They're affordable, and they get the job done. CounterPoint now forecasts the product category, which currently makes up just 2% of the overall phone market, to reach $2.8 million in sales by the end of 2023, with stable sales continuing in the short term. According to CounterPoint Research, the biggest reason for the increase is the influx of users supporting minimalist and digital detox movements, with followings including tourists and casual consumers who just want a cheap and handy device. How the sales numbers will hold up over time is unknown at the present time. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, technology, and the workplace. And Deborah reached out to me. She had a question. What are your current thoughts on return to office, RTO? And there's there's a lot that goes on in my mind. And I, I, I speak to this as being an IT professional. So when we all went home, IT departments were given major recognition for their ability to make the company productive. They were given better resources for a wide variety of efforts because everybody is now far flung. Even as we move towards a potential for some companies to say, hey, everybody come back in, or even doing the hybrid situation, whatever it is, we're finding that IT is getting better respect, and I love that. Of course, uh, I want to keep this a little bit more general, too, a matter of during this transition, we did find that many people thrived. Yes, some floundered in their new environments, and, uh, and it goes back and forth. And I will tell you, there's all kinds of studies. There are plenty of studies out there. And for every study that shows that working from home is the best, there's another one that shows hybrid is the path for balancing. And then there's another one that says everybody should move back to the office for teamwork. So what are my thoughts? My thoughts are that technology is there for us to 
move towards an international workplace for many companies. Yes, there is a situation that some workers want to be in the office. Some workers need to be in the office, and I, that has nothing to do with the want side. Some workers will thrive in the office, and they will provide a level of work that is far superior to that of what they would do if they were at home. On the flip side, there's plenty more out there that do quite well at home. They've proven themselves because they are away from the countless distractions that come their way. Oh, we've got to catch up at the water cooler. So everybody, you know, everybody's off the water cooler, the coffee maker, the the break room, whatever. But I see a lot to this. For businesses, I see the upside. They can now sort through hundreds of professionals across the country to find the one that is best suited for the role, the corporate culture, the long-term goals of the company. They no longer have to limit themselves to just those professional specialists that live within a reasonable commute. What do we call that? Maybe a 30-mile radius? Maybe it's 40 for some? You know, if you go much further outside of that, people are going to complain about their commute. They're going to want to move into that hybrid situation. The statistics are the key thing here. And the statistics are slowly proving out that those who embrace the remote work capability for their employees are experiencing less turnover and higher productivity. There are some statistics that say some of the younger generations may need a little bit more mentorship, a little bit more guidance to really effectively do the job. I'm not sure that I buy that because I have seen some youth that even though they're at home, they are they're still buckling down and they are they're doing an amazing job. Now, for employees, I, I, I think there's a lot of access there for unique opportunities that move beyond the uh, just the, uh, the typical nine to five. Personally, during the COVID lockdown, I, I, I really enjoyed working for a company that was using the follow the sun model. What is that? The follow the sun is basically it's 24-7 support from around the world. So who was I dealing with? Well, I was dealing with people in India and in other parts of the country of the world as well. Uh, Some in Brazil, some in Australia and and so forth and so on. Yes, um, I missed some of that in-person interaction, but I learned so much more about foreign locations and the different nuances of dealing with other cultures. So the statistics for employees show that they are feeling better about those benefits that come from less commute concerns. Okay, they, 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 they no longer have to worry about commuting, and that saves on gas. They also don't worry about an as extensive of a wardrobe, and they're able to eat at home. They don't have to go on out. Oh, here we go again. we got to all go out to lunch, and everybody's got to pick up their, uh, you know, the tab at the expensive steakhouse because somebody, somebody's got enough money to buy steak. I'll sit there, and I'll have a salad. 
But we also have that ability to spend more time with our family. Okay, I, I'm actually, uh, it's just my wife and I. But you know what? That's okay. And I don't mind buckling down for the occasional emergency, and neither does my wife. Which means both of us get a better work-life balance. But that's because we're productive, and we manage to get the work done that we need to get done. So... This is my approach. I know there's plenty of people out there that disagree with this, that say, oh, we've all got to do, we've all got to go back into the office so that we can justify spending, you know, the whatever it is, $100 a square foot for the office space or what, I, I don't know. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Graphene Surprise could help generate hydrogen cheaply and sustainably. Researchers have discovered that graphene naturally allows proton transport, especially around its nanoscale wrinkles. This finding could revolutionize the hydrogen economy by offering sustainable alternatives to existing catalysts and membranes. In a recent publication in the journal Nature, a joint effort between the University of Warwick and the University of Manchester presented their findings on this matter using ultra-high spatial resolution measurements They conclusively demonstrated that perfect graphene crystals indeed allow proton transport in a surprising twist. They also found that protons are strongly accelerated around nanoscale wrinkles and ripples present in the graphene crystal. This groundbreaking revelation carries immense significance for the hydrogen economy. The current mechanism for generating and using hydrogen often rely on costly catalysts and membranes, some of which have notable environmental impacts. Replacing these with sustainable 2D crystals like graphene could play a pivotal role in advancing green hydrogen production, subsequently reducing carbon emissions and aiding the shift towards a net zero carbon environment. What is graphene? Graphene is a single layer of carbon atoms arranged in a 2D honeycomb lattice. It is renowned for its remarkable strength, connectivity, and thinness, making it one of the most promising and versatile materials in the fields of science and technology. How can graphene improve batteries? The high electrical conductivity of graphene increases the electrode density and accelerates the chemical reaction within the battery, which enables greater power transfer and faster charge speeds with less heat. Almost every portable electronic device today, be it our smartphones or electric vehicles, come packed with the widely used lithium-ion batteries. They hold a limited charge and are quite bulky need charging often, and have a modest lifespan. That's why researchers have been hard at work to usher the most talked-about alternative to lithium-ion batteries, that is to say, graphene battery. Graphene batteries are said to be the absolute alternative to our current-gen lithium-ion batteries. Graphene batteries are itself quite lightweight, advanced, and powerful. Graphene has been found to be a superior material as it not only has high electrical and heat conductivity, but it's also quite lightweight, flexible, and durable. Thus, graphene batteries have been under development for many years now, 
and are expected to go mainstream in the next couple of years. Graphene batteries, how do they differ from lithium-ion batteries? The internal structure of a graphene battery is quite similar to that of a standard lithium-ion battery pack. You have two electrodes and an electrolyte solution to enable flow of charge. But there's a notable difference here. One of the electrodes in graphene-based batteries, mostly the cathode, is replaced with a hybrid composite material that is to say solid-state metal plus graphene used in place of a standard solid-state metal. While graphene batteries would prove to be a way better than lithium-ion battery really soon, researchers are now trying to improve battery performance for existing batteries using graphene. They could capitalize on this material's conductivity and larger surface area in the anode to optimize lithium-ion batteries. What are the benefits of using a graphene battery? Graphene battery is a new technology, but it doesn't mean they haven't been tested. Manufacturers have dedicated quite some time to graphene battery research, and why wouldn't they? Especially when it's superior to lithium-ion batteries we use right now. What are the benefits of using a graphene battery? Graphene battery is a new technology, but it doesn't mean they haven't been tested. Manufacturers have dedicated quite some time to graphene battery research, and why wouldn't they? Especially when it's superior to the lithium-ion batteries we use right now. Smaller, slimmer battery, and lightweight. It's when you stack 3 million layers of graphene is that you get 1 millimeter of thickness. Graphene batteries aren't going to take much space in your future smartphone. It will allow manufacturers to place higher capacity batteries in your phones, tablets, laptops, and other devices. Higher capacity. Graphene has a higher energy density as compared to lithium-ion batteries, where the latter is known to store up to 180 watt-hours per kilogram. Graphene is capable of storing up to 1,000 watt-hours per kilogram. So you can have a higher capacity graphene battery pack of the same size as a lithium-ion battery. Faster charging times. Graphene is a potent conductor of electrical energy as the honeycomb structure doesn't offer any resistance to the flow of electrons. So it can charge quickly while also providing you longer battery endurance as compared to lithium-ion batteries. Thermal management. Graphene facilitates better heat dissipation as well. It can reduce the battery's operating temperature by up to 5 degrees so your phone won't heat up while charging or playing games. There's greater safety. Graphene batteries are expected to be a lot safer than lithium-ion batteries since the material is more flexible and stronger. This means future battery packs won't need a ton of protective cases, taking less space and being lightweight. To sum everything up, a graphene battery is going to make for a better choice over lithium-ion battery in the coming years. It will be remarkably cheaper, smaller, lighter, while offering greater electrical storage and faster charging speeds. But are there any shortcomings of graphene battery? Graphene batteries have a number of benefits, but the one shortcoming that's holding its mass adoption in our devices is mass production and the costs involved in the same. Currently, the graphene batteries are being developed in small numbers by a handful of manufacturers, but others like Samsung 
are looking for ways to bring down the cost to make the next-gen batteries viable for use. The Korean giant company is said to have figured out affordable means to produce graphene batteries, and we can expect an update real soon on this. Commercialization of graphene batteries is taking place. Research in this field has been quite rampant, but we still need to be patient for its commercialization. Many companies are currently testing graphene batteries or are trying to improve lithium batteries with graphene to enhance their performance, but they're not fully commercially available at the moment. Graphene battery versus the lithium-ion battery? Almost every portable electronic device today is packaged with the widely used lithium-ion batteries. They hold a limited charge, are quite bulky, need charging often, and have a modest lifespan. Graphene batteries are said to be the absolute alternative to our current-gen lithium-ion batteries. Graphene batteries are itself quite lightweight, advanced, and powerful. Graphene has been found to be a superior material as it not only has high electrical and heat conductivity, but it's also quite lightweight, flexible, and durable. Thus, graphene batteries have been under development for many years now and expected to go mainstream in the next couple of years. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. Okay, all right. What do we have? Ben, do you remember that CES we didn't go to? There's been a few of them because CES kind of... Yeah, well, apart, it was but... just a few years ago. I, there was something. It was in all the papers. Some kind of virus broke out and made some problems for people. It, it affected a few people here and there. Something yeah. about um, wear a mask for a couple of weeks or yeah, something. There yeah, there was yeah, that. Yeah. I, I, anyway, it came to my. I just had my sixth vaccine, and I heard yeah. about a new kind of Lysol spray. Yeah, okay. Now, Lysol. I've always regarded Lysol as more of a, well, more than a destinkifier, but new Lysol air sanitizer sprays, three different aromas, they just hit levels of disinfection that ruin the day for both bacteria, four minutes, and viruses, 12 minutes. So so we're talking about not, not the typical spray that you use in the restroom, you spray the surfaces. You're talking uh, an air sanitizer spray. Well, it does both, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, Go on. So, you know, the, it'll get a lot of the airborne microorganisms and it'll eliminate certainly the ones that are on surfaces that you might pick up on a touch. Mm -hmm. And finally... Well, it may break the backs of those contagion carriers. It won't break the bank. Tenox <laughs> cans are about eight bucks at the major retailers. Sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, now, speaking about things in the air, uh, let's say, just for the sake of discussion, you're going to be someplace hot sometime soon. Okay. Well, I mean, we're at the end of summer right now, so yeah, huh. okay. So, short of freezing your outfit, how can you beat the heat? Torres, T O R R A S, sent their newest answer, the Coolify Zone wearable waist fan mm -hmm. a slender okay. curved case looks a little like somebody stretched out your grandma's princess phone on the back okay. phase change material leads up heat energy it constantly transitions between gel and liquid and inside a centrifugal fan on each side with very clever venting mm -hmm. blows a blade of breeze up your torso 
-hmm. There's an adjustable elastic belt to hold it snug against your weight, a four amp hour battery inside, and a covered USB-C charging port and charge status bar graph underneath. You get five to 15 hours of runtime per charge, depending on which of the three fan speeds you choose. The fastest is 12 miles per hour, 11 knots, 1100 feet per minute. The Coolify, uh, the Coolify Zone wearable waist fan from Taurus lists for about 129 bucks. Okay. And while we're in the air. It's a, it's a great air, way to chill. All right. <laughs> while we're in the air, uh, Works sent their WG349 20-volt power share 8-inch pole saw with auto tension. Now, we learned the hard way that when storms hit, the branches that jut out sideways are among the most likely to fall. Mm -hmm. But reaching yeah. them to cut them down is a challenge, and I'm no lumberjack. So we asked Works to send, and they sent us a WG349 20-volt power share, 8-inch pole saw with auto tension. So, you know, it's like uh, this short uh, chainsaw on a stick. Mm -hmm. nothing, nothing will ever over-tighten its chain, which also self-loops from a topside chain oil reservoir. The head lets you set the 8-inch bar cutting angle to 0, 15, or 30 degrees, and the bottom handle can rotate 180 degrees to be useful for either vertical or horizontal cutting. Now, when you fully extend the pole, it reaches 13 feet, with counting what your height might put in there. Yeah, the battery okay. at the bottom, the cutting motor at the top, balance is great. Weight, including the battery, totals just under 9 pounds. It uses the same 20-volt battery as most works tools, and it recharges in about an hour. Battery and charger are included with this one at a price of about $170 at WORXworks.com or less at many retail and retail stores. Very cool. You know that you know it, the it, that's an area which we've seen a lot of tech coming up in you know in the outdoor fixing stuff and and all of that. So uh, very fond of that. All right. The last time we're going to be handyman, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, go very quickly to the Shark Stratus cordless vacuum with CleanSense IQ. Now, okay. we've had robot floor cleaners here. This one's on a stick with an elbow in it for getting underneath furniture. The uh, Shark Stratus cordless IZ862H vacuum. It, uh, the Clean Sense IQ, I'll translate. Sensors detect the level of dirt it's encountering and adjust the motor speed and thereby the suction to suit, which helps oh, okay. overall battery runtime. This, this has their best suction in the brand. Uh, it's one of several finial pieces you can put on the end of the pipe, including an adjustable odor neutralizer. It covers a 10-inch cleaning mm. path, and hair won't wrap around its brush. Its wand, uh, well, that elbow thing, they call it multi-flex. Uh, it's a middle elbow that lets the pipe be in the second angle, and, and it, it's useful. Uh, take off the floor sweeper, you leave stick vac land behind, and you have a hand sweeper. Uh, it's other finials converted into a hand vac for cleaning furniture or stairs or your car seats or whatever. The tops of hung monitors, those are nice, dust, nice, dust yeah, nests, yes, right? yes. <laughs> Basement cobwebs, other uglies, you'll be happy to get rid of. Uh, when you do be happy, there's more good news. The extra large dust cup has a clean hands ejector on it. Full charge. This is good for about an hour of runtime. Topside digital readout tells you remaining battery charge. It's about five hundred bucks at SharkClean.com. Okay, so so it's uh, it, it's it, 
so initially it sounds like a big number, but I'm thinking of all of the different features, a lot of that, the science that's going into the, you know, making that battery run longer and so forth. I, I, I'm, I'm seriously it's worth digging it. that. Yeah. 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 It's worth it. So, so this is a, this is really great stuff. You've, you always deliver on a lot of the interesting things throughout the year. Well, why would I ask to waste my time reviewing it, reviewing it if it wasn't at least a little bit fun, you know? Very true. <laughs> As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Wentz. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Happy to report that the Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey website is back online. What happened? ACGNJ needed to renew the registration of the website. They could not locate or reach the club member who is the website administrator. He had for years maintained the website. The club had difficulty with GoDaddy as they won't deal with anyone else other than the listed administrator. They finally were able to locate the club member administrator, and the site and data are back online, a valuable lesson learned for all other clubs. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey will have a presentation on two-factor authorization, what it is, what you need, how it works, and how to use it. Friday, September the 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m., Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. And for more information, contact acgnj.org. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, September the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, September the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, September the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again. Same time, same station next week.